0: You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll hear about what homeless outreach workers face during the pandemic, when the resources they have to offer people living on the street have been very limited.
1: Everybody's scared about what they've been hearing about COVID, and there's this possibility of going into a hotel room if only you hear that you're eligible. Well, our workers who, you know, were just a week ago passing out hand sanitizer and water are now having to go out and tell people whether or not They can go somewhere safe. Our staff, they they know these people well. And to go and let them know, I know that you're on the street, and I know that you're scared, but you're just not sick enough to go into a hotel room. So um, I'm going to keep walking down the block and look for the people who are eligible.
0: I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Before we get started... At the Public Press, which is CIVIC's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate, or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use, or leave us a review. It really does help. So thanks. San Francisco's Homeless Outreach Team, often referred to as the HOT Team, sends out small groups of workers on neighborhood beats to offer support, information, and referrals to services for people living on the street. During the pandemic, the resources that are available, particularly shelters, changed significantly, and our collective understanding of what would work best to contain the spread was changing too. Mark Meza, Outreach Manager for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, talked with me about what that has meant for members of this team. I'm hoping you could start by talking about who is on the team. Tell me about the folks you work with and how they started doing this work.
1: Our team is a little complicated to understand until you're in the room with us. We have the homeless outreach team is made up of the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing and the nonprofit Luna Health. Everybody who works for SFHOT from HSH they are clinical staff. So we supervise the staff to make sure that we're doing the work in a way that's clinically appropriate. And Haluna Health, they, they do all the administrative work. They do the hiring. They do the promoting. They do whatever needs to happen to make sure that we have staff here. We have cars to drive. We have supplies to hand out. All in all, HSH staff, there are eight of us. And right now, Haluna Health, there's 66 staff. Pre-pandemic, there were probably about an additional 25 people. It's a large team. Those folks from Haluna Health, they're split into two main categories. We have a case management arm of the program and an outreach arm of the program. Outreach is a lot larger. We we have about 12 case managers right now, I believe. The way it works is our outreach teams, um, they're out in, in the streets talking to people who are experiencing homelessness and trying to see what they're eligible for trying to see what they're interested in we link people on the street who are um, interested in going indoors with whatever they may be eligible for if somebody is eligible for permanent housing often our case managers step in to help with uh getting documents ready whatever whatever barriers may be in place to help somebody navigate all of the different hurdles to go from living in the streets or in the shelters to uh, permanent housing so it, it, it's a pretty large team where we come from two separate employers, but we're all in the same building. We don't even, we don't have our own offices. We, we currently are at 50 iv which is a DPH building that's connected to uh one mm-hmm. And it goes back to um, SF Hot used to fall under DPH until the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing was created. There's still an aspect of that considering the fact that we're in a DPH building. Which is great because we work really closely with a lot of DPH programs.
0: So you've named a couple different um areas of expertise here. Um are there so that it sounds like there's you know clinical workers, people who have more of like a medical background, um, people who are caseworkers. Are there folks on the outreach team who have themselves experienced homelessness? Yes. So what? Um, how do those all interact? Is it mostly clinical workers, mostly people who have that, um, that background of their own experiences with homelessness, mostly caseworkers who are actually going out onto the
1: streets? So just one correction, our, our clinical staff at SFHOT, they're typically not medical workers. They mm. they typically have their licensed clinicians as far as like a licensed clinical social worker or oh, um, thank you. marriage and family therapist. So. Mm-hmm most, most of us on the clinical team have some type of um, background in providing mental health services. We do work closely with DPH street medicine, and that's, that's where we get our medical support. They are just a great partner to us. And we, we're all in the same building. So it's, it's great that we're able to work so closely. Mm -hmm. Um, As as far as experiencing homelessness, you know, it's not specific to outreach frontline workers, case managers, clinical staff. Um, People come to this work for all types of different reasons. And, And often it's their own experience and and there are people in all different levels of our uh, program who have experienced homelessness themselves.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I don't mean to imply either that somebody who has experienced homelessness couldn't possibly be a clinical worker either. Just wondering what the mix is of people who go out onto the street. And it sounds like it's it's a decent mix of pretty much everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who don't who aren't familiar, when does the team work and what determines where team members are sent to the streets of San Francisco?
1: Sure. Monday to Friday, we are here 630 to 7. One one piece about that is during the pandemic we we reduced our hours. We used to be here from 630 until 10 o'clock. At one point things became
2: just to clarify,
1: dangerous. 6.30 yeah.
0: in the morning till 7 at night or 6.30? Yes, yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. We're we're here for
1: longer than 30 minutes Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, we, we show up at 6.30 a.m. and we're here till 7 p.m. We used to be here till 10 p.m. It got to a point early in the pandemic where it was just too dangerous for us to be out there after dark. But also, we realized that a lot of the services we were hoping to link people with, they were no longer open. Mm. So we reduced our hours, which gave us more staff out in the field during the time when uh, services were open and, and, and accepting clients. On weekends, we are here from 8.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. We only have about four staff on weekends, and it, it's kind of the same situation of why we reduced our hours during the week. There's not a lot of intakes happening for a lot of the programs we work with during the weekends, but we're still out there providing information, doing wellness checks, whatever we can do on the weekend, but we, we typically only have four staff. Mm-hmm. Our outreach staff, they work ten hour shifts four days a week. So even though right now we have about thirty three outreach workers out in the field, that's not necessarily at any one time because they only work four days a week. So we have we have days where we're much more highly staffed than others. Mm, what four days? Tuesday Tuesday's the best. So it's it's not that they all work the same four days. It's scattered. Oh, I see. So we we have some days where we have higher staffing, like for instance, on um, Fridays, it's, it's a lot more difficult for us. We have, we have very light staffing on Fridays and Mm. through the weekend. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So what do you offer as the hot team and what do you not offer in terms of services for people who are experiencing homelessness?
1: Well, if it's okay, I'll talk about what it's been like through the pandemic. It's been very unpredictable early in the pandemic. There wasn't a lot to offer the when the shelters had to had to reduce their occupancy just to to meet social distancing guidelines, a lot of people were out on the street and when these people were out on the street there were there were no options as far as shelter and the shelter in place hotel program didn't exist yet
2: mm-hmm.
1: so at that time, what we had to offer was really information about what was going on about how to be safe, very basic supplies hand sanitizer so when the hand washing station started coming out into the community providing information about that making sure people understood the importance of uh, washing their hands at that time we weren't handing out masks because that wasn't uh, recommended by the cdc so as you can imagine it was it was pretty frustrating for our staff who were used to going out and helping people into shelter helping them towards permanent supportive housing or any type of exit from homelessness right now you know, at that point in the pandemic, they're going out and they're, we didn't even have enough hand sanitizer to give out bottles of hand sanitizer. Because if you remember, there was
2: a couldn't find it. Yep.
1: couldn't find it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So here are these outreach workers and they're pretty upset with us to say, hey, I want you to go have a conversation with everybody in your district and make sure to give them a squirt of hand sanitizer and a bottle of water. And <laughs> I mean, they... It was not only was it frustrating for them, but their clients on the street. They were just like, "Really, this is this is it? This is what you got for me?" Yeah. So you know, by the third third day of that, they're showing up, and people are just like, "You know what? Like, I'm good, good today." Yeah. As time went on, it got a little better in some ways, but more complicated in others. Uh, I think April seventeenth, twenty twenty, was our first day um, helping to facilitate placements into shelter and place hotels, and it was tough. For a lot of reasons. It was, it was tough operationally because we had to figure out a process how to make it work. We couldn't transport people anymore. The hotels were being set up by people who were learning what they were supposed to do. There was no real process to follow, so we just had to figure out as, as we went. At that time, what we were doing was essentially talking to everybody that we thought may be eligible for a hotel room, which was almost everybody we knew on the street. And the process for- um, I I have to stop you for
0: a second there and and emphasize that. I mean, at the time when this started, the the shelter-in-place hotels were very much limited to people who were seniors or particularly vulnerable. And, And I think I just heard you say that that was pretty much everybody that you were encountering on the street. Is that right?
1: So you're right that the hotels were and still are limited to a certain population of people depending upon their vulnerability to COVID. But we don't always know. Like, you can't always look at somebody and say, oh yeah, I can tell by looking at you that you're eligible. So we, as I said a little bit earlier, we worked closely with um, the DPH street medicine team and they were so nice to be able to work with us in a way that um, they were were allowing us to, to get lists of people who were interested in seeing if they were eligible for hotel rooms and they were doing the heavy lift on doing chart review and saying yes or no, this person is or isn't eligible. We started compiling a list of people who were eligible. That way, we could go and let them know like, hey, you are eligible for a hotel room. We're gonna see what we can do. Now, where this got really difficult for our frontline workers is imagine going out onto the street where at this point, everybody is scared. Everybody's scared about what they've been hearing about COVID and there's this possibility of going into a hotel room if only you hear that you're eligible. Well, our workers who, you know, were just a week ago passing out hand sanitizer and water are now having to go out and tell people whether or not they can go somewhere safe. And it's a really unpleasant experience to have to go out, especially when it's, you know, our staff, they, they know these people well. They, these, are, these are the people that they talk to every day. And to go and let them know, hey, I, I know that you're on the street and I know that you're scared, but you're just not sick enough to go into a hotel room. So... Um, i'm going to keep walking down the block and look for the people who are eligible, but it's very visible when somebody's going to a hotel room because since we can't transport people, these vans that used to take people to their appointments via um, s f paratransit van pulls up, somebody gets in with all of their things, and the first couple of days, people didn't really catch on to what was happening but it it became clear very quickly that when that van came, you were going to a hotel room so not only were the workers in the field having to tell folks they knew, hey, you're not sick enough to go indoors, but they're then having to tell people they don't even know sometimes who are running up to this van saying, hey, how do I get my hotel room? They have to let them know, hey, can I get your name and can I get back to you? Can I have some of our partners see if you're eligible? I mean, I, I really felt for them because they're, our, our staff are people who They came to this work because they want to be helpful. And it's really hard to to let people down over and over and over. And at the same time, these are folks who often have their own health conditions or they're going home to family members who may be vulnerable to COVID. So they're going out into the community and potentially putting themselves and their families at risk. And they don't even really get to leave to go home feeling great about what happened because there's so many people on the street that they're unable to help at this time So it it was it was really tough early in the pandemic first having nothing to offer then having hotel rooms but you can only offer some as time went on some of the the congregate shelters opened to be honest um, a lot of us thought that nobody was going to be interested in these um, considering everything that was happening in the media and... The yeah, outbreak. and there
0: was a pretty major outbreak in one e- of the Exactly, at South.
1: Once these started coming online, people were very interested. Because at this time, a lot of the food resources that people rely on weren't as easy to access. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't remember how long Glide or St. Anthony's were closed down or Project Open Hand, but I, I remember it was the first time I had really heard of people outdoors just really 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 being hungry and unable to access food Um, so it it was nice when i believe it was um salvation army they were they started delivering meals to some of the encampments around the city and we were lucky enough to be able to help to um, identify some of the groups around the city that needed support with food and i mean they were they were lifesavers they were they were out there feeding people when there was nothing for people to eat. Um, wow. As far as what we had to offer during that time, we we at least had to offer the information of, hey, if you guys are hungry and you're going to be here, let us know and we will do our best to get food delivered. Our ability, like what we had to offer, it shifted from day to day, from week to week. We were helping with food when we could. We were helping with hygiene supplies when we could. We we would go out into the field with with people from DPH street medicine to pretty much do just wellness checks and so on and so forth. We were talking to people about symptoms. We Just really letting people know what was going on. And I know that sounds like, or maybe sounds to some people like it's not a lot. Many people out there had no idea what was going on, what to expect, or how to stay safe. Um, And there was a lot of fear about what happens if I get sick. Am I, am I going to be made to go somewhere? Am I going to have to be alone? Am I going to be separated from my friends and family? Um, and we, we had to have a lot of those conversations to provide information and, and to help people make informed choices if and when they became sick.
0: I'm speaking with Mark Meza, Outreach Manager for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, about how the work of the homeless outreach team has been affected by the pandemic. You just talked about a lot of different things, but I'd like to talk more about the types of shelter available because over time there have been different types of shelters that the city has offered, even over the course of the pandemic. I mean, we had the traditional emergency shelters, which are usually big congregate indoor settings, which reduced capacity dramatically, then reopened it a little bit. There are navigation centers they can be in a variety of different kinds of structures and settings and then there are also these city-approved tent sites, um, which we haven't talked about yet. We have talked about hotels. And actually, just you know, the day before this interview, a plan that was proposed by one of the city supervisors to dramatically expand city-approved camps was voted down. Um, so I, I'm just wondering, you know, from what you've heard, what are you finding that people are interested in when you first connect with them in terms of the kinds of different
1: shelter out there? Everybody's a little different. So, I mean, I, I, I can't just make a blanket statement that everybody wants hotel rooms or everybody wants safe sleep sites because that wouldn't be true. Every, everybody has their own reasons to to feel safe. But to talk about the different things that are or were available, pre-pandemic, yes, there were navigation centers or traditional congregate shelters. During the pandemic, that that switched to just congregate. Um, at this point, we're not calling things nav centers or shelters. They're all just congregate temporary shelter. Mm, so. Okay. So that was one bucket. Then, as we talked about children place hotels, what you refer to as, I think the the tent sites. The, those are called safe sleep sites. Or actually, there, there's two different types. There's the the safe sleep site and the safe sleep village. So the village that was one of those was the first one that opened on Fulton Street near the um, near the Asian Art Museum, and the library, right in between the two. The villages come with a lot more support on site. They Often have showers. They have workers there. There's a lot more oversight. Which, when those were opening, was scary for people. Um, the first day that the Fulton Safe Sleep Village opened, there was already a large camp there. Within a few hours, people had come in. They had set up fences. They they were feeling very trapped in, and it was a scary moment for everybody out there. And it was a scary moment for us too, because nobody knew what was going to happen. Turned out that you know some people left, some people stayed. After word began to spread, especially at at this point, and actually I think today, now that I think about it, I think it's the one-year anniversary of that opening. I think it was April 22nd. Word began to spread that there were showers there and there was food there. And at this point, people are hungry. People are wanting showers. So there started to be more requests to go to that site. Well, that site filled up pretty quickly. And so then some more um, safe sleep villages opened around the city. But then there was a safe sleep site. And there were two of those. There was one at 180 Jones and there was one at 750 Eddie. Those didn't have the same level of oversight. There was security at the front gate. There was a porta potty and there was a hand washing station. And for some people, this is what they wanted because it didn't feel so, it just felt a little like you had a little bit more freedom.
2: Hmm.
1: Those, for, for whatever reason, they, they weren't as successful. They became unsafe. And so the 750 Eddy safe sleep site was closed. The 180 Jones safe sleep site, it switched about a month ago to be, to receive additional services from um, one of the CBOs, the same CBO that runs Fulton street. And so now there's a little bit more oversight there. Those were, those were the two attempts at safe sleep was a safe sleep village and the safe sleep site. One thing about those that's unique though, is um, SF Hot never had access to refer into those. Those are 100 percent referred into by the Healthy Streets Operations Center, which is a collaboration between the police department, DPW, HSH, um, SF Hot, a few other organizations. But that's a group that um, they go out into the city to address larger scale encampments and to link people with resources. I, I know that it's a uh, lots of people have different opinions about how that program works, which I will, you know avoid getting into that. But my only point is that that's how people get into those safe sleep sites. There's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of talk on the street, like go find somebody from SF Hot and they'll get you in. And unfortunately, that's just one more area where our frontline staff would have to disappoint people saying we, we can't get you in.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: But, but the good thing is I, the people who are there really seem to like it. There's less people that are leaving safe sleep villages than I see leaving um, congregate shelter or even shelter-in-place hotels. Hmm.
0: Oh, man, we're going to run out of time and I have so many questions. But let's talk about the hotels real quick. To, uh, just one more thing because you brought it up. Um, now that the shelter-in-place hotel prog- program has been running for a while and people have also, you know, cycled through them, they've been in a hotel and then left again, have Have you seen any changes in terms of what people think of them when, when they might be offered one?
1: Absolutely. Early on, it, there was this feeling of like these the hotels were just gonna be paradise and to some people they are and to other people it's going indoors is difficult for a lot of people who have been on the streets for a long time and there, there's so many different things for different people that are difficult about that could be just um the fact that you can't have visitors and you're inside and it's quiet sometimes it's the it, it feels like an institution you're having to sign in and sign out and it, it It just doesn't work for some people, yeah, so now that that some people have have tried it and you know it didn't work for them we we have lots of people who we'll see as eligible for going into a hotel, and they're just they they prefer not to do that at this time,
2: yeah.
0: So I do want to talk about the people who are doing this work because they're, you know, they're coming face to face with really deep trauma every single day. I mean, I'm sure you encounter people who are also having good days, but, you know, living on the street is difficult and it's stressful and it's dangerous. But the workers from who are doing this outreach work, they, they see that every day, it sounds like, or four days a week. <laughs> and And with the added stress of worrying about the pandemic and like we've all been told to stay away from each other, how are team members doing with that?
1: They're tired. It's been a really hard year. It hasn't just been the pandemic. Every Everything else that's happened this year has, has just made it really, really difficult for them. And people are, are tired. Right now, what I'm seeing is uh, we've been here every day doing this or you know, every day that we show up to work doing this. And the world's starting to open back up and people are starting to go back to their offices but we never got to feel that downtime it's been it's really just been go 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 and they're tired and it's kind of a what's going to happen next there's this uncertainty of what's going to happen next we we all see in the papers about the expectation to rehouse or or to house a lot of people who are leaving the shelter in place hotels and the potential to permanently house some people from the streets but We don't really know what that's gonna look like. We don't know what role we're gonna play in it. And people are really tired. We've we've lost a lot of staff over the past year. And also interestingly, we've had people who have come and said, hey, I wanna start working. I wanna do this like during the pandemic which Mm. is just so impressive to me. I've, I've never worked with a group of people who just want to work so hard under such difficult circumstances, and they just keep coming. Most of them just keep coming back. Um, so, yeah, the, the people that are out there, they're tired, but they're just they're so dedicated to their clients on the street that they just keep coming back. And they've been flexible in the face of every curveball we've been thrown along the way.
0: And you said you'd lost staff members. Is that because of a, a budget situation, or are people just quitting?
1: It's mostly just that people are leaving. Yeah, uh, some people aren't always necessarily quitting. Some are uh, taking on new positions mm. with with the city. Because as I said earlier, the bulk of our frontline staff they they're nonprofit workers. Which when they've been faced with the opportunity to have a city job, which feels more secure, that's where they go. So yeah. so there, there's a history of us you know struggling with retention for that reason. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's so we've we've lost people for for both reasons. There's some people that are just stressed out, frustrated by the lack of being able to help as much as they would like. There's so much need on the street and such a limited number of resources that that's that's a difficult reality to walk into every day.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, um, before we run out of time completely, I do want to give you a chance to add anything that I didn't specifically ask you about, about what this work has been like um, or anything that you wanted to wanted to say I didn't give you a chance to.
1: One of the things that, that I think burns out our frontline staff, our clinical staff, and even the, the supervisors here from Paluna is trying to figure out where our program fits as far as are we helping the clients on the street? or are we addressing concerns from the community? This is, this is a really big point of contention. And because those are at odds, it sounds like? They're absolutely at odds. Okay. And historically and presently, and hopefully moving forward, our program is to help the clients on the street. We, what we do is we link people who are interested in services with something they're eligible for and something they're interested in. When one of those three things doesn't exist, We keep talking to them on the street. But when we're getting calls from the community or if we're getting pressure from whoever it may be to remove this person who's not interested in what they're eligible for, that's just not what we do. And there's an expectation and maybe a a misunderstanding in the community of exactly what our program does. So I, and that's not to not to minimize the needs of the community, but it's just not what we do. We can't do both. If we're removing people from where they're staying, then we're not gonna be effective in talking with them about accepting whatever resources they're eligible for. So that's, that's one thing that I, I just really wanted to put out there is that we're focused on helping people on the street better their lives. And one thing that came out of that which we're trying to figure out how to move forward is during the pandemic, we, we had to essentially shut down our, our public facing voicemail line. And I've, I've seen and heard a lot of crit- criticism online. I've heard it from people in the community. I call hot, nobody's gotten back to me. I called hot, this person's still here. And one of the main reasons we had to do that initially, to be honest, was that we just didn't have the capacity to go out and do all the work we were doing and respond to community concerns. For perspective, the year before the pandemic, we had fifteen thousand encounters with clients in the community. During the pandemic, we had eighty-five thousand. We we were definitely not sitting in the office, you know, doing nothing. And I think that there's a perspective in the community that if if they call hot and they say that there's a homeless person and the homeless person is still there tomorrow, that we didn't come out and do anything. I just want to say that right. even on our voicemail line now, we do check those messages twice a day. And if we have enough information, we go out and do a wellness check and talk to the person who's living on the street. Now, just because we talk to a person doesn't mean that they're going to be eligible for what they want or interested in what they're eligible for. And that's the reality that we face. And I'm I'm just hoping to, everywhere I go, I try to get that message out that I think there is a need for the community to be heard. But our role is to go and work with the clients. And we can't do both. And be effective.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you so much for making it and for talking with me. Thank you. That was Mark Mesa, Outreach Manager for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced at KSFPLP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dylan. Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org.